Let's pray as we come to God's word together then, shall we? Father God, we just commit to you this time of study of your word. Speak to us, we pray. Lord, take away any fear, anxiety, confusion. Lord, take away any pride or arrogance in our hearts. Lord, just give us a willingness to listen to you. And Father, we pray that through your spirit, you would teach us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so we are in the book of Haggai. This is the concluding part. It's two weeks, just a short two-chapter book. As we said last week, uh, the book of Haggai fits towards the end of the minor prophets, not just in terms of where it's placed in the Bible, but in terms of time as well. Uh, written, certainly we know the details because of the history, in 518 BC. Okay, So this is 19 years after the Jews have returned from Babylon. And it's significant, that that time span, as to why. We'll talk about it again in a moment. So Haggai, again, one of the three post-exile prophets, along with Zechariah and Malachi. We said last week, his name means my festival. And actually, as you look at his life and the ministry he has, although we, we don't know much of the other details of his life, as he steps onto the scene at the right moment in history, God uses this man to, to bring about a complete change of mindset and heart with the people of Judah, the Jews that had returned. They'd come back, they'd been keen to rebuild, and suddenly they'd been the oppression from the world, from the Samaritans. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah detail the challenges they faced. But in just a, a few-month period, we see an incredible transformation. So that, that idea of festival kind of gets that uh, idea of this celebration of turning from a state of apathy and fear to a state of rejoicing and trust. As you said, it's just four months or so that he's ministering, but what a profound impact he has on the nation. Well, once again, we mentioned that the books, of, the post-exile books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all deal with prophetic things, all looking forward to what is coming. And they all have similar ideas in as much as they don't just deal with the current situation then, but they look forward to our day, to the things that are happening right now in our world and are going to happen on our very near horizon. Alongside these, we have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which detail the history, and of course then the book of Esther, which also deals with the historical details of this kind of period of time as well. Now, last week we highlighted and mentioned, and we'll talk a little bit more this morning about this, but there were three sieges of Jerusalem. Okay, so just to get the the history of the nation of Israel, of course Abraham's called, and uh, we have the nation going down, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob goes down into Egypt with Joseph, and then after 215 years, not 400, a lot of people think it's 400 because they misapply the details. We'll talk about that in detail some other time. But they're in Egypt for 215 years. The last period of that time is a time of oppression, and eventually they leave. The Lord calls Moses to go and deliver the people, and they, they are drawn out. That's what Moses' name means, to draw out. The people are drawn out of Egypt. They come across uh, to Sinai and then eventually up into the promised land. And Joshua then leads the conquest. That leads on to the time of the judge, which leads on to the time of the monarchy. And Saul, of course, is the first king, Israel, jumping the gun. They weren't prepared to wait. They wanted to be like the nations around them. Such a great temptation for all of us to want to blend in, want to be like the people around us. And, of course, God uh, approves their request kind of reluctantly. Uh, and so Saul is placed on the throne. Of course, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and yet already the, the tribe, the, the line that was going to be the royal line had already been prophesied to be from Judah. So that wasn't going to be the line that God was ultimately going to use. But because of Saul's disobedience, God removes him and David's then placed on the throne. And then we have this lineage of David coming down through the books of Kings and Chronicles. And just for information, Kings typically looks at the account of Israel from the northern kingdom's perspective. Although it deals with the events in the southern kingdom of Judah, because after Solomon, the kingdom divides into the north and south. Kings and first and second Kings deals with the account looking from the northern kingdom's perspective. Chronicles looks at the same details, but typically from the southern kingdom's perspective. Okay, so you, you'll get more details about the south in Chronicles and more details about the north in Kings. But there's a lot of overlap in those books, and it's helpful to kind of study them together if you're going to do that. 
But that then leads on to the end of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians take them captive in 722 BC. And then as the, the clock, the time ticks down, we get to the end of the kingdom of Judah, as it was. And Zedekiah is the last king. And he eventually rebels against Nebuchadnezzar and is taken away. And Jerusalem is finally destroyed. But it all begins in 606 BC when Nebuchadnezzar first comes against Israel, Judah as it is, northern kingdom gone by that point, uh, and marches against the kingdom. And um, we see this succession of kings in, in quite short, short period of time. Um, but in 606 BC, there's that first stage. Daniel is taken away captive among the princes of Judah at that time, taken away to Babylon. And from that moment, we begin a period of history known as the times of the Gentiles. Okay, this is the times where the Gentiles have had rule over Israel. And that time of the Gentiles has continued, it will continue ultimately up until the point that Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. There's a second siege in 597, um, just a few years later. And during that siege, Ezekiel is taken away captive to Babylon. And then the third siege is in 587. You you will see in some commentaries, they'll say 586 and so on. You know, if you look at the chronology, it's 606, it's 597, 587. There's no other way of cutting it. And you can look from many verses in the Bible and you can work out those dates. It's not a really big thing. But from a chronological perspective, when you're looking at things prophetically, it is important because these details really do fit together with incredible precision. And one of the reasons this is significant is because Jeremiah prophesies that there will be a period of 70 years that the Jews will be in captivity in Babylon. And it's a specific period that has to do with the nation, as in the people. And it starts in 606. That's when the nation comes under the control of Babylon. They enter into servitude, as it were. And Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished to Babylon, I will visit you. And God makes his promise to bring the people back to the land of Israel. That decree is given by King Cyrus, the Persian king, who succeeds the Babylonians. The Persian Empire comes to the fore. Babylon crumbles in a night. You know, you're familiar with the feast that's detailed in the book of Daniel, Belshazzar. This, this arrogant king, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, was then on the throne, and the whole incident with the writing on the wall and so on. Cyrus comes to the throne uh, in 539. We're counting down, obviously, BC. And it's two years later, then, as he's kind of got things settled and everything else, that he then makes and signs this decree. And we have in the, in the British Museum in London the Steel of Cyrus, this cylinder uh, in, in Sanskrit writing, uh, which details that Cyrus allowed the captives to return home and rebuild uh, and so on. So that's the thing. Now, the incredible thing is that is a period of 70 years to the day. And again, we've got history. We can go back and we can dig. We find these details. But the significant thing, and you'll be confused if you don't understand this point, that there's another period of 70 years that begins with the third siege. But that's not to do with the people specifically. It's to do with the land of Israel, because that's the point that Israel are taken out of the land, and more specifically, Jerusalem, of course, which is the capital. And Jeremiah 25, he says, this whole land shall be a desolation. This is where we get this expression, desolations of Jerusalem. And an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So we have this second period of 70 years, which begins in 587. And again, exactly 70 years to the day. God's very precise. God says that you can test him on this one. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God says, there is no God like me. I know the end from the beginning. So God gives us in his word these incredible prophecies. So that 70 years comes to an end in 518, and this is why it's significant to our study, because this is when Haggai steps onto the scene. And you'll see as we go through this, the detail of exactly when the very day this ends, and you'll see how precise these things are. Now, last week we did just briefly look at this. I'm just going to mention it again, because from history it's helpful. Cyrus, the the first kind of real uh, recognized king of the Persian Empire, 
Um, certainly from the time of the fall of Babylon, that's when then the Jews return home under his rule. And we have these other kings, his Cambyses, his son, all significant because it's during that time that the work on the temple is stopped. So when they get back to the land, some 50,000 or so Jews want to start rebuilding, but immediately they're stopped by these Samaritans that are in the land, these people that had been moved in by previous um, kings of Assyria. And so they've been kind of moved into the land and they've made this their home now. And when Israel finally come back, when Judah come back into the land, they want to stop any attempt they have of rebuilding. And so they petition Cambyses, or as scripture, Ezra speaks of him as Artaxerxes, uh, they petition him, and he says, yeah, okay, stop for now, we're going to do a search, and that delays the work. They can't do it. So they, they, they start the work, but they don't continue it. They don't get very far at all with that. And then there's another king in between that. And then we get to Darius, or Darius, however you want to say that, the great, uh, spoken of in Ezra, chapter two again, sorry, chapter 4, verse 24 and onwards. Uh, and this is the king then that is now on the throne, from a, the, ruling the Persian Empire, of which Israel are now part, uh, in 518, he comes to the throne in 520, and this is 518, again, counting down BC, um, that he makes this decree. So I'm just going to go back, I know we looked at this last time, but just to get the, the, the run of this, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the second year of Darius, so 520, so two years down, 518, in the sixth month, the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, governor of Judah. Now, by the way, he was of the royal line. He could have been king. But of course, God had said that Israel would remain for many days without a king because the next king to sit on the throne of David will be the Messiah. And that was God's plan all along with these things. Israel, again, the, the, the kingdom has kind of come to a halt. The crown had been taken to Babylon. As we said last week, it will come back. The Magi will bring that crown back when they bring it, when they come into Jerusalem looking for the one that has been born king of the Jews. And this is what Haggai says to the people. Uh, by the way, as we said earlier, that this is where the, the times of the Gentiles uh, is kind of now in play during this time. Uh, and so he said, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you to dwell in your sealed or paneled houses? And this house, God's house, lie waste. And this is the challenge. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And Haggai then will build on this challenge to the people that the, the cedar that had been brought into the land, which should have been used for the paneling of the inside of the temple when the temple was built, had just been used for people's houses instead. They'd been using the things of the Lord for their own benefit and own blessing. And of course, Jesus says we should seek first, not our own projects, but seek first the kingdom of God. We get to verse 14 and 15, and we read, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehizadek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. See, God did this work. God stirred up their spirits. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the four and twentieth day, in the sixth month, in the second year, of Darius the king. So they start this building project. They start gathering the materials. They start getting everything ready to do this. And it's just 24 days from that call going out from Haggai to this incredible change. Bear in mind, there was still a threat. There were still people saying, if you start this project, you're going to be in trouble. There was, there was a genuine threat of hostility, war against them. There was the possibility that the king... Darius the king might once again, as had previously done by his um, predecessors, he might step in and say, stop this work. So it was fearful. They were kind of going against the tide. They were going against the government of the time in what they were doing. But they were stepping out in faith. They were trusting the Lord. And that leads us into chapter 2. And then we move on just a month from where chapter 1 was. And we read chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day, in the twenty-first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai. Once again, the Lord stirring Haggai, bringing him to this point where he just he just can't contain. The Lord speaks through him, saying, "Speak now to Zerubbabel." It's a great man, this Zerubbabel, by the way. By the way, he's sown in Babylon. Yeah, that's where he'd lie, his life would begin. But it doesn't matter where your life begins. It doesn't matter what is in your past. Zerubbabel is a great example of what the Lord can do with somebody that is prepared to yield himself. 
Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of uh, Jehizdek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? It's like, who, who here remembers 70 years ago? Does anybody remember what this was like? Do you remember how incredible this building was? Do you remember the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon? And she was overwhelmed. I mean, she was a lady full of resources and wealth and everything else. And she comes to Jerusalem. She meets Solomon. And she is just blown away by the magnitude and the the wealth of Solomon and the the buildings and everything he had accomplished. And this temple was just stunning. But that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And now Haggai, the word of the Lord comes and says, you know, who, who remembers? Do you remember what it's like? Now, some of them may have even been that old. They may have been kind of their 80s, their 90s, and they may have remembered. They may have been that old. There may be others that have been told by their parents. They were born in Babylon. Their parents said, oh, the temple, it was just incredible. We used to go up every year, and we used to celebrate the Passover. We used to do these things. And the the challenge now is, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it in... Is it not in your eyes? Sorry, is is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? It's saying, you know, your your outlook now is that we're never going to be able to rebuild what we had. We've lost that. It's gone. And whatever we do now, it's going to be inferior. It won't be as good as what we had. It's that almost fear of looking forward. Do you know, I, I, I see this and I've seen it over the years with many Christians. They're fearful of what's coming. And the only reason for that fear is a lack of understanding of God's word. And God is giving his word now through Haggai to the people to take away this fear. They were like, oh, it was so wonderful what we had. That was great. But our efforts now, what are they going to come to? And there was the real question of, will we be able to complete it? Will we be stopped again? Will we have people trying to wage war against us to, to stop this building project? Will the king stop it? So they, even though they turned the step down in faith, there was still that almost disbelief. It's very much what they were holding on to. And we're all prone to do that. We hold on to the things that we know of this world. And there's a challenge even in these verses, and as we build, you'll see, to let go of those things, to reach forward to those things which are ahead. Verse 4 goes on, and Haggai, the Lord speaking through him, says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehizedek, the high priest. And be strong, you people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. This is a great statement. The Lord is encouraging them, saying, Get up, do this, be strong. Do the work, but this is the real key. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. That's that expression again, I think some 240 times or just maybe a few more than that. But in the uh, in the Bible, we have that expression, the Lord of hosts. It's the God of heaven's armies. You know, they were fearful of what Sambala and Tobiah and these Samaritans and that one might do to them. What would be the repercussions of stepping out in faith and doing something so openly, overtly for the God of Israel? What would people say? I mean, think today, if we stand up for the Lord, it's not very long before somebody will try and shut you down. And they were doing this. But God says, I am with you. Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that what Paul says? And it's not just God is saying, I am with you. He says, by the way, I am with you, and remember who I am. I am the God of heaven's armies. Again, they've not been granted permission to rebuild. That Samaritan threat had remained very real. Nothing in their circumstances had changed other than their hearts. And now, because of Haggai's call to consider your ways, they were doing this work. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In Matthew 17 verse 20, Jesus said unto them, if you have faith 
As a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. You know, mountains uh, in Scripture often represent kingdoms. There's a number of times we see that analogy used. And the greatest mountain is the kingdom of self. I've said many times that if you understand two thrones, you'll be pretty okay with understanding the Bible. The first one is the throne of David. If you understand what the throne of David is and the significance of that, and the fact that the Messiah will come and rule and reign on the throne of David is a Jewish throne, you have no problem with understanding the whole end time scenario. The other throne is the throne in your own heart. That's the tough one. But if we come to that place of relinquishing control of our own kingdom, giving it over to the Lord, and trusting God, well, those mountains can be removed into the sea, and nothing will be impossible. Verse 5 carries on, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. See, God is taking them back to the start of the nation. God does this. You know, we often look back and want to hold on to the things that we can remember, but God uses this as an example saying, look at those markers on your journey. The times I provided, I did the miracles for you. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear you not. This is after the captivity. This is another nail in the coffin of replacement theology, isn't it? Because this is after Babylon, and they're back in the land, and God says to Haggai that my spirit still remains with you. Not left you. God never leaves the Jews. He's never abandoned them. So he says to them again, fear ye not. See, again, fear will always come from a lack of trusting God's word. Hebrews 13, verse 5, God says there, I will never leave you or forsake you. Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus said to the disciples just before he returned to heaven, he says, I am with you always. Verse 6 of Haggai chapter 2 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, again that title, the Lord of hosts, God of heaven's armies, yet once it is a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. There we go. Another expression, the Lord of hosts, another time we have that. Okay, there's a shaking that is spoken of here. Clearly it's quite significant because God is saying, I'm going to shake the heavens. What's that going to be like? And the earth. It's not talking about a little earthquake here or there, a tremor. That's shaking the earth and the sea and the dry land. This sounds quite big, isn't it? And then verse 7 says, And I will shake all nations. No one's going to be free of this. And the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory. This is the work they were about to undertake to rebuild this temple. And God says, I'm going to fill this house with glory. And he says, you know, in a little while, they were worried about what might happen. And God effectively says to them, don't worry. So there's two things here. We just kind of unpack a little bit. What is the shaking and who or what is the desire of nations? Well, firstly, the shaking clearly is referencing the world's kingdoms. That's beyond just the local, and yet there is clearly a local application to this. We'll mention in a moment. But really, it's those who now fear will soon be, sorry, those who you now fear will soon be removed, but my temple will stand. That's what the Lord is saying. There's going to be a shaking, and those that you're worried about, that you think are going to cause you a problem, well, they're going to be shaken. You know, the same applies right now. It was one of the things that yesterday was really brought home at the conference. Mike Golan and uh, um, Tommy Fretwell and Amir Safati uh, were all speaking. And this was one of the themes that came out. There's going to be a shaking. And the things and the people that we worry about or fear about or we're concerned about, the people that seem so antagonistic towards Christians and our right to declare that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that the Bible really does set God's rules and parameters for mankind and how we should live and how relationships should be. And we might fear, or sometimes fear, what they might say or what they might do or where's the world going. Well, it's the same situation now as Haggai was speaking to the people about in that time. 
God is saying, there's going to be a shaking. Don't worry. God is saying, I've got this. And God is saying, I'm going to fill this house with glory. Speaking of that temple they were about to build, but with a a future perspective as well. There's a long-term application. Let me just give you the local application of this. Now, this is just from Chuck Misley. He said this, the Ionian Greeks have been subjected to the rule of the Persians under Cyrus about 540 BC. This is the Greeks and the Persians, okay, geographically. In 501 BC and about 20 years after the date of Haggai's prophecy, they rebelled against Persia. So just a, a few years, in fact, about 18 years or less, they rebelled. The Greeks rebelled against the, the Persian rule, bringing on a Persian invasion of Greece about a decade later. Darius, the king at this time, led a great army but was defeated a marathon in 490 BC. There was a shaking at that time with these nations. Darius's successor, Xerxes, who we know from the book of Esther, marshaled an even larger army, 1.8 million men, the largest army ever seen. Uh, but in 480 BC, the Greeks scattered the Persian navy and defeated the Persian army at both uh, Thermopylae and Plataea. And a year later, the reassembled Persian navy was again defeated. As the Persian Empire began a gradual collapse, Alexander the Great led the Greek armies over the Bosphorus against Persia and defeated the Persian armies at Granicus in 334 BC, and Isis in 332 BC, and Arabella in 331 BC. After Alexander's death, the Greek Empire broke up and was eventually replaced by Roman rule of the Mediterranean countries. So they were concerned about what was going to happen. But what God says that there's going to be a shaking. All those powers that you're worried about right now, don't worry about them. And so that was locally what took place within just a few years, these things. But we know that there's a future application, a bigger picture. And that's even given to us in the context that all nations are included. Because in Hebrews, we get a quote from this book, from Haggai. Hebrews 12 Pick up verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, speaking of God. For if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth, that's speaking of Moses who kind of gave them the law, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven, speaking of God, speaking of Jesus Christ, whose voice then shook the earth at the time of Mount Sinai when the law was given. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this is the quote. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made. That those things which cannot be shaken may remain. All right, so the writer of the Hebrews makes it clear that there is going to be a shaking. The world's kingdoms are going to be shaken. They think they're doing what they want to do. They're having it their way. And of course, everything is being lined up for Antichrist to come in to take control of this world. And again, this came out very clearly in the, the teaching at the conference yesterday. And those sessions will be online on calvarychapel.uk uh, in the, the coming weeks. For anybody who wants to go and look at them, I encourage you to go and do so. But everything, you know, all the way through from the pandemic that we've been going through, I think we're probably coming out of it. But all of that has just been pieces of a big jigsaw. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, but they're just the beginning. One of the things that came out yesterday was that it's going to get worse. And you think, what kind of conference was this? You know, we, we all gather there as Christians and it's going to get worse. But that's not a reason for, to fear for us. It's the same as Haggai was saying to these people, don't fear. Because God is doing a shaking of all those things that can be shaken so that the things which cannot be shaken will remain. Well, that's you and I. Because we are built on a rock. That rock is Jesus Christ. And when the winds and the waves crash against it, that house will stand. Because it's built upon a solid foundation. The world is building upon the sand, a very, very unsure foundation. They're building upon their opinions and their ideals and their dreams and their perversions and twisted ideologies. Those things will come crashing down. And this verse in Hebrews goes on, verse 28 says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Why? Because it's the God of heaven's armies. It's the Lord of hosts that's doing this. Let us have grace 
whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Well, that's how we need to be living our lives these days. Praying for grace that we won't fear. Not fear the world, but to have a godly fear, a reverence for him. That we may serve God acceptably. One of the things that, again, just came home. And in fact, it's not just yesterday at the conference. It's recently so many different things. The Lord is getting his people ready. Now, I, I'm not saying that the rapture is going to be a week next Tuesday. I mean, if it is, it's great. This afternoon works for me too. But, you know, the sooner the better because we are going to be out of here and the Lord will then do what he's going to do on this world, in this, on this earth. The tribulation will begin. But we don't need to fear. But we do need to be getting ready. You know, the Jewish bride before her wedding day goes through a number of different ritual procedures. The mikvah, the bath where she's cleansed of anything of this world, and even things like nail polish are removed and so on. It's, it's just a cleansing. And, and she has a chaperone to help her with that. But we have a chaperone. He's called the Holy Spirit. And his job is to get us ready for our wedding day. You, you don't get, well, I mean, today you probably do, but so you don't get a bride walking down the aisle that just didn't bother making an effort, just wore you know, trackies and a, a, a jumper. That doesn't happen. I mean, as I say, it probably does today, but generally speaking... The bride wants to make an effort. I Certainly my bride, my wife, for her wedding day, she made an effort. I mean, she always makes an effort. I'm not saying she does it other days, but it, it was just, it was a special thing. Anybody, the brides, you know what it's like. It's such a special day. But that's what we are getting ready for, our wedding day. We're going to be united with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We should be excited about that. We should be looking forward to that. We should be wanting to remove everything of this world, breaking every single tie with the things of this world. And it says, for our God is a consuming fire. Don't look at that, by the way, in a negative sense. It's a wonderful thing because a fire, if you put metal into a fire, it gets rid of the dross. All the the impurities are brought to the surface and it becomes pure. Oh, I praise God that he's a consuming fire. I want him to be a consuming fire in my life. Consume away everything that is not of him. You know, in 1 Corinthians 3, we have those six materials, wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, precious stones. Our works, everything we do is the wood, hay, straw. It goes through fire, it gets burnt up, there's nothing left. But the gold, the silver, the precious stones, they're the things that we do when we sow to God, when we live our lives for him, when we serve him, when we serve each other, when we serve the church. And when they go through fire, they're purified. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, there we have it again, God of heaven's armies. God is really making this point, actually. As you go through Haggai, you see this constantly recurring theme that God is the God of heaven's armies. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once, it is a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And this is the second part of this that we need to understand. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. Okay, so what are our options? Now, Instantly, we will probably say, well, is that not a reference to Jesus? And a lot of commentators argue that case, and it may well be a reference to Jesus. But my question would be, could we really say that Jesus is the desire of the nations of this world? Actually, it's quite the reverse. The nations of this world want nothing to do with Jesus. Others argue that it could be the wealth of the Gentiles being brought in in tribute. The things that they desire being brought as tribute. I will shake the nations, and it's as if to say that the desire of nations shall come. The, the wealth and everything that the nations desire shall be brought into this house. God is speaking, of course, the context here of how great this house is going to be. Don't think that it's not going to be wonderful. Don't think, oh, the old temple was so wonderful, we'll never be able to match that. The Lord is saying what's coming is better than anything you've ever known. Or it could be Antichrist. Because this could be a a three-parter in verse 7. I will shake the nations. God is going to do that. We've already spoken about that. That's going to happen. We're seeing it happening with all the things that are going on around us in the world. And then that's number one. Number two, the desire of nations shall come. What is it the nations desire? Well, they desire someone to take the helm, to rule over them. They desire a return to Babylon, a one-world government, a one-world monetary system. Oh, we're really close to that. 
Nick was saying to me yesterday, I believe that Biden has made some comment that I think in eight months' time he wants to start to move to a, a kind of cryptocurrency model. I haven't read the details yet, but Google it, you'll find the details of exactly what he said and what the plan is. Whether it happens or not, we're going that way. We're moving to a, a system where unless you have a mark, you won't be able to buy or sell. But we've already had a little foretaste of that. The whole vaccination passport thing. Look, as was made really clear yesterday, COVID is not the mark of the beast. It's just a little stepping stone on the journey. Getting people ready to take things without really questioning too much. It's getting ready, it's conditioning people. Because eventually there's going to be this system for buying and selling. And, and I think it was Switzerland, there were some slides put up yesterday. Um, was it all Sweden? I can't remember. Um, Sweden, thanks Pete. Uh, Sweden have, uh, have got this chip and it goes back three or four years ago they've been doing this. They've been implanting this chip in people's hands uh, which has got all sorts of information and data on it, and they were using it as part of the COVID thing uh, as kind of a track and trace thing. Now, fine, okay, I'm not, not going to argue with that, but we know that it will be something along those lines, whether it will be that or something else, that will be used during the tribulation. There will be a mark put on your, your hand or your forehead. And without that mark, you won't be able to buy or sell. You know, even 10 years ago, People, I mean, Christians all kind of had ideas of, well, maybe it could be this, maybe it could be that. We are so much closer. We now see the mechanics of how these things can be done. Notice uh, that statement, though, that God is going to fill this house with glory. I'm going to come back to that at the end in a moment. But Adam Clark just makes this comment. He says, God says he will shake or stir up all nations, that these nations shall bring their desirable things that the house shall be filled with God's glory, that the silver and the gold which these nations are representatives bringing by the way of gifts are the Lord's, and that the glory of this latter house shall exceed the former. So his position seems to be, and a lot of commentators are, that this is a reference to the nations, the desire of nations bringing in their wealth into the house of the Lord. Now that didn't really happen in Haggai's time, so we have to see maybe a future fulfillment of that. And again, it could be a reference to Jesus. It could be a reference to Antichrist. And I truthfully, I don't know because there's lots of different good comments by the commentators. I actually think it's all three. Whichever specifically this applies, every one of those applies because the desire of nations is Antichrist. That's what they are wanting to come. The wealth of the nations will be brought into the house of the Lord. During the millennial reign of Jesus, all the nations will come up and bring tribute to the Lord. And of course, Jesus is returning. The financial, the wealth of the nation seems to fit the best. If I were to lean anyway, that's the way I would lean. Because verse 8 goes on and says, and the Lord reminding them really of what Psalm 50 verse 10 says, but he says here, verse 8 of Haggai chapter 2, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. So it's almost as if the Lord is saying, it's all mine anyway. They're going to bring it in, but it's all mine. And Psalm 50 um, <clears throat> Reminds us, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. It all belongs to God anyway. We can't give him anything that's not his. Verse 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. So we have this statement, the glory of the latter house. Now, In the context of what the Jews would have understood, they'd have been looking at the house they were about to build compared to the house that had been built. So Solomon's temple compared to what we refer to as the second temple. So just to be clear, the Bible speaks of four temples. Interestingly, this came out yesterday also. The first temple was Solomon's temple. Very clear, David had the heart to do that. He laid the plans, but Solomon built it. Then we have this temple, often referred to as Zerubbabel's temple. But also sometimes referred to as Herod's temple, because Herod later added on to this building. That's now history. Those temples have gone. And then there's two temples to come. There's another temple that will be built, and it could be any day now. The Jews will rebuild a temple on the Temple Mount. Whether it's going to be in place of the Dome of the Rock, 
alongside the Dome of the Rock? We'll see. But they will build. They've already got everything ready. They've had it ready for years. Back in 2007, I had the privilege to go to Israel, and I got to see the uh, table of showbread that's already made. The priest's garments are already made, already prepared. The incense altar, the golden altar, all these things they have got ready. The menorah, it's huge. It's taller than I am. It's an incredible thing. They've built it. It's ready to go. They're just waiting for the opportunity. So that temple will be built, but that temple will be the temple that stands during the time of the tribulation. By the way, Jesus, John, Paul all spoke about that temple being built. But that temple will eventually be the temple that Antichrist will put his image in and cause everybody to worship it. Just desecrating this holy place. So that temple will eventually be destroyed. And when the Messiah, when Jesus returns, Yeshua returns, he will build his own house. He will build a temple, and that will be the millennial temple. So there's four temples. But in the context here, Zerubbabel's temple, is they would have understood clearly from this prophecy that this temple they're about to build, the glory is going to be greater than the first. How could this be greater and better than Solomon's? Well, for a number of reasons. Because after... 41 days, Jesus as a baby was taken up to Jerusalem. He was dedicated. Simeon and Anna there. The Messiah in the temple. Then as a 12-year-old boy, we see Messiah again. Yeshua in the temple, teaching in that temple. Jesus said himself, Matthew 12, verse 6, but I say unto you that... In this place is one greater than the temple. Well, to the Jews, the temple was everything. And Jesus is saying, I'm greater than the temple. And there Jesus was as a 12-year-old boy in the temple. And then later, a number of times, Jesus goes in. I think at least three occasions, Jesus goes in and turns over the tables of the money changers. Why? Because he had a zeal for the house of the Lord. So in that respect, this temple that they were building was going to be greater because... Whilst on Solomon's temple, the Shekinah glory of God had been there, it had been removed during the days of Ezekiel, the Messiah himself, the Son of God, God manifested the flesh, would actually be in and teach from this temple. So in that respect, this temple was going to be greater. The glory of it was going to be greater. There's another application which we'll come to in a moment. In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered said, No. Again, this goes back to the Levitical rules and laws about things being holy or defiled and so on. And holy things have to be kept separate. Well, there's a great lesson for us right there, isn't there? Holy things should be kept separate. This is, by the way, three months on from Haggai's first prophecy. And he goes on and says, Then said Haggai, if one, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. It's just speaking of what defiles and what doesn't defile and so on. And Then answered Haggai and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, which they offer there is unclean. This is a principle that's being laid down. Holiness cannot be communicated by contact. It's an issue of the heart. But unholiness, incidentally, can. There's a number of scriptures that reference that. You see, good work doesn't make us holy. And that's one of the lessons that Haggai is trying to get across. It comes back to that issue of the heart. The heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. And God was calling them not just to get into these things, do these practices, but to be truly set aside for God, for their lives to be set apart. God didn't just require sacrifice. It was obedience he was seeking. Verse 15 goes on, And now I pray you consider from this day, 
Okay, so how can I making this really important point here? From this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days were when one came to a heap or of 20 measures, but there were 10, when one came to the press fat or for, for to draw out 50 vessels out of the press, there were but 20. Okay, so just cast your mind back to chapter 1. They had these money bags, as it were, with holes in. Everything they were doing was failing. The harvest wasn't coming in. And that's when the Lord steps onto the scene through Haggai speaking and says, consider your ways. You've been sowing to your own devices, your own desires, your own ends. You need to sow to me, to my work, to my house. And the Lord just reminded them, just, just, just think back there, before, the, before even you'd laid a stone, before this project began, do you remember that you were struggling? Your harvest wasn't coming in properly? You know, you're expecting 20 measures, but only 10 measures. And God says, and I smote you with blasting, with mildew, with hail, in all the labors of your hands, yet you turn not to me, saith the Lord. The Lord was saying, I was trying to get your attention. I was trying to bring you to a place where you realize that if you only put me first, there'll be blessing. And now, verse 18, consider now from this day and upward, from the 420th day of the ninth month, Haggai, very specific, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Why was this day so important? Because it was the day the desolations ended. It was the day the foundation of the temple was finally laid after 70 years to the day. Now, at the very time the Babylonian army was surrounding Jerusalem, Ezekiel, hundreds of miles away in Babylon, is told to record a specific day. It was the 10th day of Tibet in 587 BC. That's the third siege. That's when this 70-year period kicked off. And Haggai here nails the end date. The interval is exactly 25,200 days or 70 years based upon a 360-day year. Now, just indulge me one second, because some of you have seen this already, but if you haven't, you just need to see this. It's just so incredible. Ezekiel gives us a mathematical prophecy okay, in the book of Ezekiel regarding judgment upon the nation of Israel. Let me just read this quickly. First one, it says of chapter 4 of Ezekiel. Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. Okay, he's making a little model of the city. And lay siege against it. You know, boys do this little thing where they're kind of you know, Soldiers, and you kind of you know, build little camps and things. This is exactly what Ezekiel was doing. It seemed fun to start with. Lay siege against it and build up and cast a mound against it and set a camp also against it and set battering rams against it and roundabouts. So he's building these little battering rams and he's making this little model. And people are walking past going, oh, That's very nice, Ezekiel. What are you doing? Why are, are you playing with these toys? Because he's trying to get a point across. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan. So he went, Mum, can I borrow one of your, your pans? Why? We, I, just, I just need to borrow a pan. It won't be long. So he goes and gets an iron pan and he sets it for a wall of iron between thee and the city and set thy face against it and it shall be besieged and thou shalt lay siege against it. People are walking past his eagle going, you know, these, how long many days it took him to build this? What, what are you doing? And then God says, this shall be a sign to the house of Israel. Lie thou also upon thy left side and lay the iniquity of Israel upon it according to the number of days. Thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. So he's going to have to, when he sleeps, he's going to have to lay on one side next to this model by the seam of it, the sound of it. For I have lain upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of days, 390 days, so thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Okay, so we have a, a number, 390 days, each day represents a year. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, you sleep on the other side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I've appointed thee each day for a year. Okay, so we've got two numbers here, 390 and the 40 days. So a total of 430 years, because each day represented a year, of judgment that God, through Ezekiel, is decreeing upon the nation of Israel. Now we know that 70 years are accounted for in Babylon. But we're left, therefore, with 360 years of judgment that are unaccounted for. And you can search your scripture. You won't find any place where those 360 years of judgment are played out. But when we go back to Leviticus, we're given a really interesting clue. In Leviticus 26, four times God says, 
that after God has brought judgment upon the people, if they refuse to repent, if they refuse to return to God with their whole heart, God will multiply their punishment by seven times. If ye will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times. So God's going to bring judgment. If after that judgment they haven't repented, God will multiply their punishment by seven times. And that's four times repeated in that chapter in Leviticus. Now, if we put those things together, we have the 70 years of captivity with that 360 years left unaccounted. Israel still didn't hearken after that first period. So according to Leviticus, we then multiply that remainder by seven times. Okay, it gives us a total, if we be very precise, and God is always precise, a total of 907,200 days until Ezekiel's prophecy, this period of judgment upon Israel, will be fulfilled. Right, let's go from the third siege. We've been talking about that this morning, 587 BC. 70 years, exactly 25,200 days. Haggai nails the date. We've seen that already. The desolation of Jerusalem, it comes to an end. 24th of Kislev, 518 BC. Now, what happens if we jump forward then, 907,200 days. The exact amount of that prophecy from Ezekiel and Leviticus combined. It takes us to the 7th of June, 1967. Exactly. That is the day that Jerusalem, and bear in mind, this is all about Jerusalem, the desolation of Jerusalem. It's about the land. That is the day that Israel recaptured, restored Jerusalem. What happened 19 years before that? Just out of coincidence. Coincidence, by the way, is not a kosher word, apparently. Well, we know that the restoration of the nation took place on the 14th of May, 1948. That's when the nation, not the land, the nation became a nation again. If we apply that same gap, that 25,200 years or 907,200 days, and we go back, where do you think it would take us? Well, it takes us exactly to 537 BC and the decree of Cyrus. And of course we have that servitude of the nation 70 years from the first siege. That is breathtaking. And the more I look at that, the more I consider this, the more I teach it and study it, the more amazed I am at God's complete control of history. That first siege for the people began in 606. After the 70 years, we have that period of extended judgment. Takes us exactly to 1948, 14th of May. And then the same thing regarding desolation of Jerusalem. It's fulfilled to the day. By the way, there is a, a tool um, you can get called Redshift. Uh, it's not a Christian thing at all. It just allows you to look at where the planets and the stars are at any one time. It's an astronomy, nothing to do with astrology. Uh, it's absolutely fine. Um, and you can put in there a particular date, and you can jump forward or back a set number of dates, and it will tell you what the date would be. Okay. Now, you can, you can put in a number of days. Now, you can see there on the left of your screen, over that side. So we've got there the, the date that we understand that the siege of Jerusalem took place, 16th of August, 587 BC, according to our calendar. And we jump forward to the time step, 25,200 days, and it comes exactly to 14th of August, 518 BC. This is when Haggai's prophesying. If you jump to the next time step, 907,200 days, that comes exactly to the 7th of June, 1967. I'm making this stuff up. You can go and check this. The same because if you go from 606, the first siege, again, we jump for our 70 years or 25,200 days, that will jump straight to 21st of June, 537 BC. Again, the time step going forward, that's, the, that's when this decree of Cyrus is signed and they return to the land. And then the jump of 907,200 days will take us to the 14th of May, 1948. Let's just finish. Verse 19, Haggai chapter 2. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, is yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not brought forth? From this day I will bless you. You see, there's been an hour change. The heart of the people has changed. They're now trusting the Lord. They're seeking the Lord. They're doing the work of the Lord. And God says, I will now bless you. Those things that you struggle with that weren't bringing forth fruit, they weren't being blessed, I will now bless them. From the moment that foundation was laid, God's period of judgment, that 70 years had come to an end. At the same time, God calls his Haggai, raises up Haggai for that moment to get the heart of the people back to him. And God's blessings begin to fall. 
Verse 20, and again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. You know, there's another application to those comments we made about the temple. Seven times in the New Testament we're told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there is an application here where the glory that is to be revealed in us is beyond anything we've ever imagined or thought of. You know, the temples in Jerusalem are wonderful. The first temple, as you said already, God's Shekinah glory was upon that. We have that very same presence within us. And look at those, do a little personal study. Look at the times in the New Testament where we're told that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And consider what that means for you. You see, they were stepping out in faith. They were doing this building work. And God says the glory of this latter house is going to be greater than the former. Well, I would say the glory of this house, our bodies, the, the, the place that the Lord has chosen to dwell through his Holy Spirit is greater than any of those buildings. Because God himself is dwelling within us. God says, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms and of the heathen. I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Speaking of the judgment of what's coming upon this world, this is way beyond just the local application. I just want to read to you, this is years old, but I think it's fascinating. Some of you may have heard of Lance Lambert. It was a, a prophecy he gave. I'll leave you to test it to see whether you think this is right or not. But let me just read it. Do not fear, neither be dismayed, for that which is coming upon the face of the earth. This is, by the way, this is way before COVID or any of these things. This was years and years ago this was given. For I am with you, says the Lord. Just as we saw with Haggai. God's saying, I'm with you, Zerubbabel. Nevertheless, I have a serious controversy with the nations. They are seeking to divide my land, says the Lord. The land that I covenanted to give to Abraham and to his seed after him through Isaac and Jacob as an everlasting inheritance. This I will not allow without devastating judgment upon those nations who pursue this plan. I have arisen with intense and furious anger and will not back down until I have destroyed their well-being. I will cause their economies to fail and their financial system to break down and even the climate to fail them. And by the way, this was way before all the recent stuff about climate change. I will turn them upside down and inside out and they will not know what has hit them, whether they be superpowers or not, for I am the only one, the almighty God, and besides me there is none to compare. Do they believe that in their arrogance they can contradict and nullify covenants that I, the almighty, have made? Do they believe that they can change what has gone forth from my mouth with impunity? It is my word and my decree that has gone forth concerning the seed of Abraham. It will not be changed by man. I and I alone am almighty. Do not fear. For this reason, a new and far more serious phase of judgment is commencing. Do not fear. Do you see the parallels with what we've seen already in Haggai? God said to them, don't fear. Let me carry on. Do not fear. It is I who is shaking all things. Remember that in me you have peace, but in the world tribulation. Trust me. I am shaking all things so that that which cannot be shaken may remain. When all your circumstances become abnormal, discover in me your peace, your rest, and your fulfillment. In this phase, the old and powerful nations will become as if they are third world countries. Superpowers will no longer be superpowers, but countries such as India and China will arise to take their place. A great company of the redeemed will come out of these two countries. In all this change, do not fear. I know your weakness and your tendency to fear, but do not be dismayed at these things. In the midst of all this shaking, this turmoil and strife, there are two peoples that lie at its heart. The true and living church... And Israel, I will use these matters, these events to purify one and to save the other. Do not fear above the storms, the shaking and the conflict. I am the everlasting and almighty one. In me, you cannot be shaken. You can only lose what is not worth holding. I'll leave you to pray through that and see whether you think that applies. I think that applies pretty much to everything we've just seen Haggai saying was going to apply there and what we are experiencing right now. And the thing that I love about that is that that line, that the 
Behind all of these things, the two peoples lie at its heart, the true and living church and Israel, and I will use these matters, these events, to purify the one and to save the other. And that is what God is doing right now in our lives. That is why these things are going on in the world. God is bringing judgment and he's using it to purify the church. And then we read, in that day, verse 23, saith the Lord of hosts, I will take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, says the Lord of hosts. And God is a God without partiality. You can apply that to yourself, true, too, because God has chosen each one of us. What a privilege. It's power hearts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to review these things. Oh, Lord, the parallels between Haggai's time and what he went through and the message he was to bring, the fear of the people, and what we experience right now in this world. Oh, Lord, the parallels are uncanny. But we see, Lord, that you are a a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you, Lord, have given us these examples that we wouldn't be confused. Lord, you are not a God of confusion. You are a God who wants us to be of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Oh, Lord, stir our hearts with these things. Give us a greater love and confidence and trust in you than we have ever had, regardless of what is going on around us, regardless of the storms. May we lift up our heads and look unto Jesus. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.